Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to all those who are kind of watching us online and listening to us and everything else. Uh, anybody here new for the first time? I don't see anybody. Good, then I don't have to explain who I am or why I'm here. Uh, <laughs> Pastor Jeff's away this weekend. The last time I preached, I had to preach with him sitting here. At least this time, he's hopefully he's listening, but if he's not, that's okay too. This morning's message I titled, The Confusing Mystery of Sin. Now, we started a series last week on heaven, and we're going to continue with that next week, but today we're going to take a little detour because I think in order to set our eyes on heaven, we need to talk about sin. Can anyone give me a definition of sin? Louder. Missing the mark. Missing the mark. That's a good one. Um, there's a whole lot of information on the topic of sin. I wonder why. In the uh, New Living Translation, which is where our scriptures are coming from this morning, there are 922 verses that mention sin. That's a lot. The basic definition of sin that we as Christians understand is that it's something against God. It's the breaking of God's law. That law being the expression of perfection that God's absolute holiness demands. It's the missing of the mark, like Phil said. That mark being the perfect standard of the divine will. It's unbelief, for it rejects the truth that God has revealed. It's ungodliness, and it makes a person guilty before God. Now, before I go on here, I want, I want to make everybody aware and understand that we're not talking about all the things that suddenly come to mind that you did B.C., and that's before Christ for those of you who might not realize that. You know, the, the, uh, to be haunted by those things just means that the enemy's still kind of got a hold on you, and you, you don't want that. You know, that, that stuff is supposed to be, you know, in, in Christianese, it's supposed to be under the blood. So what we're talking about here is kind of the everyday garden varieties of sin. So where is it first mentioned in God's Word? And I think we all know this one. In Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say to you, you must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat of the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now here's the great line. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. Now, I've always wondered, you know, we blame Eve for the sin, Scripture says Adam was standing with her, next to her. What do you think Adam was thinking? Being a guy, I think what he was thinking was, cool, talking snake. 
you know, why didn't he do anything? It, it's, it's a guy thing, right, guys? It's, so sin is kind of a riddle, and it's also a mystery, but it's a reality, and it sometimes eludes our definition and our comprehension of it. We most often think of it as wrongdoing or transgression. It includes a failure to do what's right. You know, you always, whenever you come into a situation, you always have a choice, right or wrong. You know, I go this way, I go that way. It also offends people. It's violence and lovelessness toward other people. And ultimately, it's what? It's rebellion against God, right? Further, the Bible teaches that sin involves a condition in which the heart is corrupted and inclined toward evil. Psalm 19.12 says, How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Psalm 36.1 says, and it says for the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, but it's David's psalm. Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. They have no fear of God to restrain them. And Jeremiah 17.9 says, The human heart is most deceitful and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? So, so what's sin? Sin's a heart problem, right? It's, uh, when we sin, we, we do what? We cut off fellowship with God. And if we keep doing it until our heart's hardened, we can actually cut off relationship with God too, if we're not careful. So, if sin's a heart problem, and it's all about our, our relationship and our fellowship with God, what do we do about it? We, we've talked about what it is. Let's talk about kind of living it in the context of our lives today. How many of you spent the first couple months of the pandemic binge watching Netflix? Nobody? Come on. Okay, I have a question for you. How many of these recent movies shocked you? Does it seem like profanity and pornography are kind of rampant right now? Is it everyday fair? Is the F-bomb just another adjective? What about the daily TV shows that are on, on the major networks? Have you, any, have you watched any of the newer cartoons with any of your kids? You ought to, because they're amazing. <laughs> uh, is there anything in these new programs that you can sit and watch with your 13-year-old daughter? Do you think that's by design? Do you think that all of this is designed to harden us to sin so we don't pay too much attention to it? I remember a pastor telling me that, that one of Satan's greatest victories is that he's convinced us here in America that he doesn't exist. You know, we don't see him. Or, or we choose not to see him, I think is, is, the, uh, is the best way to put it. When we lived upstate, when we lived in northern Pennsylvania, up above Scranton, we had a young lady come stay with her, and we kind of called her, her our foster daughter. Her name was Shelly. And she got into some show, watching some shows on TV that, that Marion and I thought were questionable. And we talked to her about it, and her, her comment was, well, she's the only one watching them, so she's not hurting anybody. Well, 
I told her, I said, ask yourself this question. If Jesus was sitting there next to you on the couch, would you watch that show? Well, her attitude changed about that because she had just gotten saved and she was, you know, she was at that point where all of us who just got saved were, she was, you know, she was all full of energy for Jesus. And she suddenly realized that what she was doing affected her relationship with Jesus. So she started to be a little bit more choosy about the shows that she watched on TV. But my point there is we're constantly bombarded by sin. I mean, it's constant. Every day, every, you turn on the TV, you listen to the radio, you go to Walmart, you go, you know, anywhere you go, you, you get it. And some of it, like our kids modeling the behavior they see on TV and in movies, that can be easy to see. We can catch that right away. But there, there's other types that are a little bit more complex. You know, let's, let's talk about something like, uh, let's talk about addiction. Is addiction sin? No, right? Um, now, I, I, I caught some flack from this from one of, our, uh, one of my friends in the back there. Because what I said here is, be careful how you respond, all you coffee drinkers and Mountain Dew drinkers. Because we're addicted. I'm addicted to caffeine. I always call it, it's the only drug that's still approved for Christians, right? <laughs> now, addiction can lead to sinful behavior, right? You know, if we're addicted to alcohol or we're addicted to drugs, you know, my, my, my old sponsor used to say, it'll take you places you don't want to go. You know, you can say, well, I never did that, and before you know it, you end up doing it. Um, but an addiction isn't necessarily a sin. Now, let's look about it in a little bit different light. How about this statement? Anything I put before my God is an idol. Well, you know, do I put coffee before God? My need for coffee? Maybe sometimes. Uh, I, I guarantee you that an alcoholic will put alcohol before God. Been there, done that. Now, does that make it a sin? It's getting a little more complicated, isn't it? I mean, where do you stand on that? Is it? Isn't it? Where do, I, where do I go with that? Is it all about my actions? Or is it about my heart? Is it about what's in here? Pardon me? Yes. What's, what's the scripture? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And out of the overflow of the heart, a lot of other things come too. So let's try and simplify this, this sin thing a little bit. The most basic list of God's laws that we have is what? Ten Commandments. And you can find them in a lot of places in Scripture. I chose Exodus 22 to 17. And I'm going to go through them here. Uh, because I think there's, there's some things we can glean from this. The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. The second commandment says, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Now, how many of you here were here for Sunday school? Glenn Bertol was talking about Aaron. And what did Aaron do? 
The people were complaining, so he had them give them all their gold rings and earrings, and he melted them down. And, and like Glenn Bertold said, all of a sudden this cow just came out of the fire. You know? <laughs> um, it, that's, that's kind of what they're talking about here. It says, you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Now the first commandment forbids worshiping a false god. The second commandment forbids worshiping the true god in a false manner. That's kind of confusing, but that's, that's what my book said, so we're going to go with that. The first commandment has to do with whom you will worship. The second commandment has to do with how you worship. The first commandment already prohibited worshiping the false gods and idols of other nations. The second commandment prohibits the use of idols in worshiping the one true God. So what was Aaron doing? Aaron made that calf and he, he built an altar and he said, Tomorrow we're going to, what, worship the Lord. You know, that's, it's, that's not as confusing as it sounds when you look at it this way. You know, Second Commandment says you can't use an idol in worshiping the one true God. So I kind of look at it like this. I'm on the worship team. Katie's on the worship team. Keith, a couple other people are on the worship team. Can we make worship into an idol? Yeah, we can, right? And is, that, and is that using an idol and worshiping God? Sure it is. So we have to be real careful about how we, how we look at these kind of things because it's, it's real, easy to, real easy to slip up. Now, the third commandment is you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. This is more than just not swearing. This is, this is about respect for God by not using his name improperly, is basically what it, what it says. The fourth commandment says, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. It's an extensive list. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart. Now, I'm going to tell you there's about three sermons in that little section of Scripture there. We're not going to get into it all today. And we're not going to talk about is the Sabbath day Saturday or is it Sunday? Is it the first day of the week? Is it the last day of the week? I think... I'll give you a bit of history on it. How, how many of you, okay, good, Darlene's left. Is she the only teacher in the room? Um, how many of you in, in grade school or high school were forced to read A Tale of Two Cities? No? Boy, you ought to read it. It's a great book. It's about the French Revolution. Madame Lafarge knitting, you know, no, no, boy, okay. During the French Revolution, the radicals that controlled France outlawed the seventh-day Sabbath. 
the rest every seventh days. And they required a rest every 10 days, every 10th day. What do you think happened? Production went down. Animals died. Can you imagine that? Because of not having the seventh day rest. Everybody kind of lost their strength to work, so production went down. So, you know, we, we, we kind of look at the Sabbath in a different way today than, than maybe they did 50, 60 years ago. But there's still a, a importance in, in resting and worshiping God on the Sabbath. It's why we're here right now. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land your God is giving you. Uh, and as a parent, I say amen to that. Honor your father and mother. Um, in looking back when I was from the ages of about 13 to about 20, I didn't do that real good. And, and I'm sure there are those of you here that can agree with me. Yeah, we didn't do that too good. Uh, and I, I think till I was t about 25, I thought my parents were the dumbest people in the whole world. And then when I got married and started to have my own kids and started to face my own problems, I suddenly realized they were the smartest people in the whole world. Now, the rest of the commandments, I think, are pretty explanatory. You must not murder. No question there, right? You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not t testify falsely against your neighbor. And you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbors. Now, how many of you have bought something because your neighbor bought something? I have, right? That new car, uh, Rectech grill, um, you know, those kind of things. You, you see your neighbor get something, you say, gee, you know, that's pretty nice. I'd like to have that. Well, that's what the that's what the Ten Commandments have to say about that. So, so who, how many of you have kept all the Ten Commandments? I think many of us have broken all but two or three, right? You know, and and some have broken all of them. Um, and at this point, I'm kind of ready to say this is starting to get confusing, right? This whole sin thing is very confusing. Well, how about we look at it this way? What did Jesus teach about sin? Because we're under the New Testament covenant, right? Jesus taught, and we said this before, Jesus taught that sin begins in the heart. Matthew 15, 19. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. What we say and what we do flows from what? Out of our heart. Now, I, I had a, an old Sunday school teacher when I, when I first got saved, and he, he did a whole series on the heart. Did you know that a heart has, the heart has its own brain? There, there's a cluster of nerves in there, and that's why that you've, you've all seen the movies, somebody gets their heart cut out and the heart is beating. Well, it does. It has its own kind of central nervous system there. So... The interesting thing is, is that these guys, when they wrote this, didn't know that. God knew it. So out of the heart comes all this stuff. 
How many times have you found that when your heart is full of anger, you what? You can't say anything nice, or you do something stupid, or you say something stupid. What else did Jesus say? Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. John 16, 8 and 9 say, And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Now, we often refer to the Holy Spirit as what? The comforter, right? He is, but he's also that little voice inside your head that says, eh, I wouldn't do that, you know, or I wouldn't say that. That twinge that you get when what, you, what you're doing or what you want to do, you know is wrong. Jesus taught that we must forgive those who sin against us. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, we all talk about, and we, we've, we've learned about the unforgivable sin, right? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Personally, I think Matthew 6, verse 15 is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Evidently, it's an unforgivable sin to not forgive someone. It says, if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Well, what happens if your sins aren't forgiven? Judy, what was that? You're lost. You're lost. Yeah. You're going where? Yeah. Now, Is there anyone in your life that you can't forgive? I think we, we all have that one person. And I think we really need to think about that because, to put it another way, God can't forgive unforgiveness. So we need to forgive. And I can tell you from personal experience, that can be difficult to do because, you know, some people have hurt us to the point where we don't see how we can possibly forgive them. Jesus taught that his blood makes it possible for us to be forgiven our, of our sins. Matthew 26 and 28 says, For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. His blood established the New Testament, the New Covenant. Hebrews 9.11 Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 15 says, So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscious, consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice to our sin, for our sins. 
That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. So, so there in Hebrews is, is everything we are as Christians. Under the Old Testament, a man who wanted a right relationship with God approached God through the sacrifice of what? An animal's blood, right? Uh, he believed that God accepted him because of the sacrifice of the animal. Under the New Testament, we believe that God accepts us because of the sacrifice of Christ. A man's sins are forgiven and he becomes acceptable to God by believing and obeying Christ and by believing that, Christ, believing that Christ's blood was shed for him. Now, when I was a new Christian, that, that whole blood thing was not only confusing, it was a little bit disgusting. Um, let me explain it this way. Pretend I've got a garbage can up here. And, and, there, there, and there's, a, there's a great sermon illustration in here, Pastor Keith, for the future. If you take all your sins and throw them in a garbage can, that's the garbage, right? And, and you can, some of us can fill it up right to the top, I'm sure. Um, in the Old Testament, they sacrificed an animal, and the blood of that animal was like, was like a cloth that covered the garbage can. Now, what did God see when he looked down on that? He saw the covering, right? He saw the cloth. But, but that was temporary because the garbage was still in the can. Now, what does Jesus do? Jesus come, comes and he takes that garbage and he gets rid of it. And he cleans and he sanitizes the garbage can and he sits it there. Now, what does God see when he looks down? Nothing. That's the covenant of the New Testament. That's how our sins are gone under the, under the blood of Jesus. And that's the difference between the blood sacrifice of an animal and Jesus' perfect sacrifice. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. That's pretty far when you think about it. So what's the point of all this? Wow, we're going to be out of here early this morning. Can I get an amen? Here's what you need to take away this morning. Sin is very confusing and it's sneaky. You know, it's like, it's, in some ways it's like an addiction. And, and anybody that's addicted, really addicted to something can tell you, you can, you can decide you're not going to do this anymore. And you can be fine. You can be fine for a long time and you can be walking down the street and all of a sudden you'll find yourself in a bar having a drink. That, that sin's the same way. You can turn a corner and right there it is. So it, it can come in very quietly and it can be full blown before you leave it. This is one of the reasons why the ancient Jews expanded the Ten Commandments into what? Over 600 laws that they tried to follow and, and failed miserably at it, by the way. Now, we have it a whole lot easier, thank God. This is what John wrote in 1 John 2, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 
He says, my little children, that's us, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And I guess I got the wrong text here, uh, Brad. Sorry for that. We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Now, this version, which I think is King James, that second verse says, and he is the propitiation propitiation of our sins and not for ours only but for also for the sins of the whole world so again that goes to Jesus didn't just die for your sin or my sin he died for everybody's sin forever so your children and your grandchildren and if you your great-grandchildren and if the Lord tarries their great-grandchildren you know that he died for all those sins so for us the moment we realize something isn't right which, who tells us that? Holy Spirit, right? We can hit our knees and we can repent and we can ask forgiveness. Now, we all wonder why Jesus hasn't returned yet. Well, Scripture tells us that God is being patient for what? For our sake, right? I think the way the King James puts it is that none may perish. God doesn't want anybody to perish. But... You know, I have a caution for you, and I think Glenn Berthold said it pretty well this morning too. Don't think you can do, keep doing the same sin over and over and over again and just keep asking for forgiveness. Because what happens? What does Pastor Jeff say all the time? Your heart gets hardened, right? And it becomes what? It becomes easier. And that little voice that you hear isn't quite as loud. And, and nothing happens. So, so you do it again and nothing happens. Now, that's how you start to walk away from God. And, and it doesn't happen in a day and it may not happen in a week and it may not happen in a year, but if you keep going that way, it's going to eventually happen. So it's always a good idea to check with yourself. And, and I've heard a lot of people say it. I've heard Phil say it. I've heard Pastor Jeff say it. Check with yourself daily. You know, what have I done today that maybe I should talk to God about? You know, what am I contemplating and doing in my business or uh, at home with my family that maybe I should talk to God about before I do it? Glenn Bertold talked this morning about integrity versus anointing. And, and one thing that he said, and I think he made it very clear, is you can have the anointing of God and you can have absolutely no integrity. We see it all the time with some, some of the uh, past TV pastors and ministers that have huge congregation, have done a ton of good work, and, and we find out on the side that they have 16 girlfriends and three mistresses and this, that, and the other thing. That's anointing without integrity. And who, who does God hold up as the example of integrity in the Bible? Job. Well, Jesus, sure. Jesus had no sin. But Job, it, when, you, when you look at the book of Job, he says, you know, consider my servant Job. And, and he's a man of integrity. So, to me, I think it's important to have integrity. And I think the rest of it, if you believe in Jesus and you continue to pray and continue to ask for forgiveness, 
I think that all, it all comes together. And like the scripture said, you know, God, God isn't necessarily going to hit you with the bolt of lightning if you make the golden calf. But it might happen to your kids because of what you did, because you're not living a good life. What are your kids going to be like? What's Pastor Jeff say? More is caught than taught, right? So if I'm a miserable person and I tell my kids I don't want you to be like that, what do you, how do you think the kids are going to turn out? If I'm miserable to them, no matter what I say, they're going to turn out miserable, right? Okay, it's 11.30. I won't tell Pastor Jeff that we left almost a half an hour early, if you don't. And I have a feeling he's probably listening, so it's, so it's all good. Um, let's pray. Father, Father, forgive us. Uh, for we are sinners. We do it all the time. We do it every day. And, and thank you so much that you give us the ability to ask you for forgiveness. But Lord, let us also become sanctified. Let us, as, as Paul said, let us move from glory to glory and become more and more like you, which is, which is what you want. Lord, we ask that you bless this congregation. We ask that you bless the work of our hands out in the world. We ask that you give us the ability to speak of you and to bring people in because that's what we're all about. And Lord, we pray for safety uh, in this world that uh, is increasingly coming against us. And Lord, we, uh, we, say, we say to you, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We, we thank you for uh, the hope that we have. And now just, just bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.